a couple weeks back. We had our friend Mike Burhau preaching about the Old Testament sacrifices that were enabled by Abraham. And he talked about how um, Abraham and God made a covenant together. And so they, what they do is they'd split animals right down the middle and you'd stand in the middle of it. And what would happen is that symbolized the splitting of both sides. And then he said that when God and man make a covenant, it is unbreakable. And so you are in blood, in between the blood of animals, showing that you are going to keep one another's promises together. And then what he said about that was, Abraham, as a guy does, fell asleep during this process. What that meant is, he's being a bum. And so what God did is blazed a flame through the middle. And he said, that meant, God said, I am going to take your half of the deal if you fail to do it. And it was a beautiful picture. Now with that, he made a covenant, made promises that we tend to keep on breaking. So today, we're going to talk about priests and high priests. That's what Hebrews 4 is all about. And they are to uphold the sacrifice. They are to uphold the ritual of this. Um, And so as we talk about that, we typically don't talk about high priests or really understand them for that matter. Right? We typically don't talk about them. It sounds like some form of Catholic tradition that many of us should like to forget. It's something that seems a little old-fashioned. Why would we focus on priests when we have so many other forms of relationship that we have with Jesus, right? Jesus is our friend, our savior, our mentor. We've got all sorts of titles and relationships in our heart. Priest would probably be the last one that we pick. But it's somewhat easy to think that priesthood or Jewish things in general is advanced theology for the pastor, so to speak. I'm going to go to him. I'm not really going to think of this critically, but In reality, when we read the Bible, it's very basic to Christian living. Alistair Begg is our favorite Scottish Baptist preacher. Um, He says this, and I'm not going to try and do an impression. I'm not going to do this do justice. He's awesome, and you just go YouTube him. He's the bomb. But he says, we dare not make the Bible any more complicated than it is. The Bible has not been written in code. The Bible is not a series of conundrums. Conundrums. Imagine Scottish accent. It's not a bunch of rhymes and riddles which you have to read with a special magnifying glass that is only given to a special group of initiates. The Bible has been written with clarity, in truth and simplicity, in order that sinners might be brought to salvation. So my prayer for you today is that as we read through this, This would be so clear to us. It would be so basic that you might walk out of here and say, I understand this, and it's so clear, and it's so pivotal as a part of our faith. So Beg continues to talk about um, a suffering that we have of a scant understanding of the Old Testament and how this tends to kind of skew our view of the Bible, right? We usually want to read the New Testament, the good news, the good stuff, right? That Old Testament's kind of the old stodgy stuff that we don't want to read and what he would call a scant understanding or a lack of interest for that matter. We're just not really even interested, so we read what we want to read. Give me the New Testament. Give me the good stuff. We read about Daniel in the lion's den in Sunday school, David and Goliath, but they become a little more than stories 
that we tell our children, disconnected from the gospel and the work of Christ. And of the Jews of this time, this was not the case. Reading the Old Testament was their life. And so as we dig into this, I hope to realize, and I hope that I can convey to you today, that a high priest in the most traditional Old Testament sense is not only the best news for the Jews at this time, it's the best thing ever for you and me. The best thing. This right here is the good stuff. This is what we want to know. So if you please open up Hebrews chapter 4, starting at verse 14. We're going to read through chapter 5. Since then, we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find a grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a high priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who is able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So, if I was to sum this up, if I was to give you one line so you knew exactly what I was going, where I'm going with this, it would be this. It's very, very simple. The priesthood of Christ exposes our great need and proves his great love. The most basic level, it exposes sin in our lives and it proves the lengths at which God is willing to go to love us. So here's what's going on in Hebrews, a little bit of context. I preached a couple weeks back, and we talked about how the Jewish people are now becoming Christians. And their context now is that as they're becoming Christians, they're raised knowing the Old Testament, but they have to kind of relearn some things. And one of the things they're coming across is that they're being persecuted at all sides. They're getting things thrown at them at all sides by the Jewish community, by the Roman community, secular community. They are persecuted. They are under intense uncertainty. And it talks about in Hebrews elsewhere, those in prison, those who are mistreated. It gets so bad, and they do so well at taking this. This is somewhat of a book of encouragement to them. The book is largely commending them, hey, keep going. Keep going with this. It says, joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Now, I don't know about you. I'm not getting my property plundered, but if I did, I'd have a real bad day. Right? I would not like that. I wouldn't be joyfully accepting it, watching a man come out of my house. But that's where the Hebrews are at. 
They're getting plundered. And this book is telling them, keep going. They're struggling, but keep going. And the possibility of an eternal high priest, something that kind of reorients their thinking about where they're at, was music to their ears. In order for it to be music to our ears, we really have to know exactly what a high priest meant to them at that time. We've got to stick ourselves in their shoes, so to speak. And so, if we don't grasp this, we will read this form as some form of poetic passage that sounds great to the ears, but makes no sense in our heads and means nothing to our heart. Because we don't understand. We don't grasp this. And so what I want to do is actually walk through maybe the characteristics of the Jewish high priest in chapter 5, verse 1 through 4 first, and then get a great image of what a high priest meant to them, and then go back to chapter 4 and verses 14. So if you turn with me to chapter 5, verse 1, we're going to dive right in. For every high priest was chosen from among men, appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. The first thing we see, chosen among men. A characteristic that a high priest was chosen among his peers. Why? He was chosen among his peers. He had to be one of them. He had to be from them and among them. He had to understand what they were going through. This is crucial he had to speak empathetically about their situation and where they were going and what they were going through. On behalf of men in relation to God, the gap between men and God required an intermediary, an intercession. Apparently there's this gap that keeps getting wider and wider and man could not bridge it on his own. So the conflict had gotten to the point where it got so bad, someone had to step in. The high priest was the person that stepped in. You ever seen this? A conflict so bad that somebody had to come in and intervene in that conflict? That's pretty bad. Like times, we like to step back from that. We don't want that to happen because that's kind of admitting defeat. This situation here between God and man is so bad, somebody has to step in. Because one side, namely the man's side of things, is not right. So we have to have an intermediary to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. It says, the sin was bad, something had to die. The sacrifice was so great, the sin was so great, something had to be sacrificed. Verse 2, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. So deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. Why? Because he himself has the weaknesses. In other words, the work of the high priest's hands had to match the work of the high priest's heart. They had to understand their own weakness. He knows his own sin. And so to be a high priest, you have to be empathetic with his people. He had to be one of them. He had to have a heart for them. Verse 3, because of this, he is obligated to sacrifice, offer sacrifice for his own sins. He has to see the effect of his own sin and see what it takes to be right with God before he makes an atonement for others. It's not a one-way street here. He's not just saying, you guys are so bad, God knows that I'm great, I'm going to offer sacrifices. No, he says, me first, I'm messed up, I'm going to go first, and then he's going to appoint and he's going to intervene for the other people. And no one takes this honor on for himself, but only when called by God. 
And so you see this called by God. This is actually a mind blow for the Jewish people at this time, right? This actually is clarity to them. And so what's happening in this time is that high priests were typically appointed by God. That's how things are supposed to be. But the system was extremely broken. And so what started to happen is, is the high priest started to be appointed by the political establishment, right? Herod and his family in the Jewish line started appointing the priests. So imagine this, if I can paint a picture for you. Imagine pastors being ordained instead of by the church, by Donald Trump. Like, wherever you fall politically, the president, even Trump, He's now saying who's a priest and who's not. And so the corruption that happens in the line of Israel is years and years and generations long. And so what they find when they hear these words is that a high priest is called by God, amen. That's what they're thinking, finally, yes. Because what you guys know about politics is as soon as money gets in the way, as soon as power gets in the way, it gets corrupt. And so does the priestly lineage This is setting things straight. This is setting straight what a high priest is. This is a correction of that. It says, just as Aaron was. And so if you want, outside of this time, we're not going to dig into it. Look into Leviticus 8, 9, and 10. Aaron was instituted and his family as a high priest. Moses called the entire nation together and called by God. Aaron became the first high priest. And so what does that look like? Okay, high priest, what do you actually do? So what would happen is once a year, this is the only time they could go into God's presence, once a year they would go into the holiest of holies, only the high priest. It was a very dark room and no one could ever enter, but once a year with a pan of blood from an innocent slain lamb. And so you're walking into this dark room in the holiest of holies, and you're walking, and what they would do is they would dump the blood over the Ark of the Covenant, the broken commandments of God, as a sacrifice. So they'd slain something, carried it into this dark room, and pour it over the Ark of the Covenant. That sounds like a graphic image, but it was a pretty graphic problem. Right? We, don't, we don't think about, okay, well, what's the way that I can make something better for someone? What is, what is the way that we could remedy this? This was the way that God instructed us to make it better. And it was only once. They had to do this over and over and over again, year after year after year. This is what it took to be right with God and for the high priest to be in his presence. Otherwise, off limits. You're not, you're not going to be with God because the sin is so great. And so after you do this year after year after year and you follow this generation after generation, you got to ask yourself, when's this going to end? Like, we have to keep doing this. There's all these rules we're following. Insert Jesus in chapter 4. If you please turn with me to chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse verse 14. He's talking to Christians. He's talking to you and me. He's talking to Jewish Christians. He's talking to believers. Since then, we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. Again, music to their ears. They had watched their system, their priesthood crumble. Their traditions had failed them. But now, they got one who passed through the heavens. Yes, we get a new one. This one's good. Hearing that Jesus is their great high priest, again, just, what? He's passed through the heavens. This is awesome. It says, hold fast in turbulent times. Hold fast to your confession. And so in this time, 
that they are looking for hope. And in a time when you are looking for hope, this is encouraging. Hold fast. And here's why you can be confident. And it wasn't that they were doing better, right? It's hold fast because you've got a hope that is in Christ. And so, church, I would say the same thing in times when you're looking for your confidence right here. Hold fast because you have a greater high priest. Verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. In every respect, he was tempted. Jesus was hit with every single struggle, every single problem, nothing that God experiences or has experienced is outside of his control. And so nothing you are experiencing is something that he is foreign to. Okay, if you're experiencing some form of trial, some form of temptation, you say, this isn't fair. He experienced all of that. He experienced that temptation. He does not hold a standard to which he does not understand the implications of, all right? He's not just a heavenly deity out there that doesn't understand your struggles. He's with you and he's for you, which means one great thing. You are not alone. Believe that. Not only are you not alone amongst your peers and your temptations, God himself understands what you're going through. He's with you. He understands that. He gets it. He's experienced it. Believe that. Yet without sin. He experienced it all, all that temptation, yet without sinning. That's the most important part for us, and we're going to go into it a bit. But I couldn't do it. I I don't do it. Every single day, I don't do it. The temptation comes up and I fail and I fail and I fail. But Jesus went through it all, experienced every pull, every tug to sin, and didn't do it. And that's going to be the best news for us. He fought the good fight and he won. So now what? We get a walk in verse 16 here. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need with confidence, boldly, courageously. Why can we be confident? Are we confident because we're doing better? Are we confident because we stopped sinning? No, because we have a high priest who passed through the heavens and now we get to be confident. And you ask yourself, I don't know if I'm right with God. I haven't been reading. I haven't been doing these things. Apparently, the confidence that we could derive with our relationship with God is not based on something we do, but based on a high priest that passed through the heavens that finished the work with us. This is good news for us. Are you guys reading this language here? Draw near. Draw near to approach, to pull close it implies a personal relationship with God. That, that of a father. A fa- you draw close to one you love. It says, draw near. Throne of grace. Read this. This is awesome stuff. What a beautiful picture of power and goodness. Draw near to the throne of grace. He's king of kings. He's lord of lords. And yet, he has grace for those who act against him. What a good and loving father. What an awesome, awesome king we've got. It's so, it's so awesome that we can come to a throne, which is typically royalty, 
something that no one else can come to except those who are esteemed and qualified. But God draws us close to a throne of grace. What a great father. And so sometimes it's easy to read this and read the Bible and really just be looking for yourself in the text. Like, all right, God, what applies to me now? We're talking about a high priest, but what, what applies to me? But just look at how awesome is, awesome God is and just marvel in it. Just for a, for a minute here, let's do this together. Let's read through this. If you just look in chapter 4, verse 14, since we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, we do not have a priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. So here we go. He's empathetic. What a great God. He's empathetic. We do not have a high priest who is, you know, in every respect was tempted yet without sin. So he is without sin. He didn't sin. With confidence drawn near to the throne of grace, he's gracious to receive mercy in time of need. Mercy. Gracious, merciful, powerful. He's perfect. It's great. That's awesome things that we can see about God. And you see this. You want to be a good leader? You're looking for leadership. You're looking for leadership in other people. You're looking for leadership in yourself. You want to be a good leader. Be like Christ. Well, just look at the characteristics. We're just looking in three verses here, guys. Be like Christ. Humbly pursuing us. Humble pursuit. So if we read the Bible and we find God in it, there's this joy that will well up in you. But if we read the Bible looking for ourselves, it always will let us down. Always, always. I mean, we can look at this. Just in these few verses, check this out. Sympathize with our what? Verses 14 through 16. Sympathize with our weaknesses. So what do we learn? We're, I guess we're weak. Tempted as we are. So we're tempted people. Yet without sin. He was without sin. We are not without sin. We're sinful. Our help in time of need. Apparently, according to this text, we're needy. We just read three verses of the Bible and we found out we're weak, tempted, needy, and sinful. Now, this isn't fun. This isn't motivational. There's no level of esteem that you'll build by reading this text in Hebrews. You're not going to leave going, yes, I'm feeling great about myself or the rest of the Bible for that matter. As you do this, we just did this for three verses and it's already looking like God is really, really great and yet we are needy, weak, tempted, and sinful. This is hard. We couldn't do this on our own. This puts us in a state of humble reliance. So if he is humbly pursuing us, we are in a state of humble reliance. Now that doesn't sound good to any of our pride right now. This is the exact opposite of what you're told today, right? So today you're going to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You can do this. You got a problem? Just try harder. You've got this. Just look inside yourself. That's where the problem is actually at is the problem is the solution is inside you've got to look and dig deep into yourself and there lies the truth you're a princess but listen we don't want to do that the gospel is not about us the gospel is not about ourselves and thank god it's not because when it was we were slaughtering lambs just to make things right with god when it was on our shoulders we kept failing it and while his holiness is matchless and our sin becomes great, there's this gap that widens between us and God and we see that we couldn't bridge it. 
Why? Why can't I bridge that gap? The reality is we're broken. You try your best, your absolute best, and you fail. We throw the dart and we miss almost every single time. Instead of moving the board to match, we miss the board. We're in a culture that tells us we're just going to move the board and that's how well you are, right? You, you didn't miss. You didn't miss. Nope, the board is right there. We're going to change our expectations of one another so that we can prop ourselves up. No, we don't do that, church. We own our sin and by so doing, we accept his sacrifice on our behalf. Don't ever let anyone lessen your sin. He had to die for that. He had to die. Just look at, look at chapter 5, verse 7. In the days Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. He's referring to Luke 22 in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's about to be crucified on a cross and he sees the pain ahead. And he goes to God to pray before he is crucified on a cross. He says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. He's crying and pleading, God, don't do this, please. If you have a choice, please don't do this. I don't want this cup. Take it from me. God, anything but that. Just being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And the sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. The sheer amount of pain he's experiencing in that moment should just give us a glimpse of how horrid our sin is and the relation to God. The pain that he foresees and he's about to put on for himself. Hebrews 5 says, To the one who could have saved him, God could have made it all better. He could have given him comfort. He could have kept everything he had and left the earth without a scratch or a mark, but it says, he says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. God, take the cup, but if not, your will be done. And he went through and he spilled it all. Why? Why did he have to do this? Why are you spilling this? Why are you going forward with this wretched thing with all this pain? Because I messed up. Andy Jorgensen messed up. Because we acted up. Man acted against God. We stepped out of line because we sinned. He was slaughtered. Mocked, scorned, rejected by God Almighty. Right? This is not fun to talk about. This is not entertaining for me to say. It's not enjoyable, actually. It's, it's horrid. But it's true. We want to know the truth. The truth is there's a reason you feel ill when you sin. There's a reason your gut starts to churn when something goes wrong and when you do something wrong. Our sin is real. It has eternal consequences. The Bible says that God turned his face away from Jesus on the cross. The goodness of God couldn't bear to look at all the darkness that was on the cross put on Jesus. That's not my son anymore. He turned away from him. And the full brunt of all that sin, the penalty, and the measure of God's wrath in full was placed on Jesus. And so all the pain and all the wrath of God was placed on it. So he sits on the cross and he, and he hangs there and he says, Eloi, Eloi, lava sabachthani. My God, why have you forsaken me? Why would he do this? Why would he go through all this pain? There's got to be a reason why. Chapter 5, verse 8 and 9. Please read this with me. 
Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And he was made perfect. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. The reason he went through all that pain is because he loved you so much, he was willing to do it all so you wouldn't have to. You'll never have to experience the thing that made the Son of Man sweat blood, ever. Whatever made him cry and beg for mercy, whatever he foresaw in the Garden of Gethsemane will not be anything close to what you experience. You as a Christian will never experience it ever. There's no circumstance, injury, sickness, poverty. There will be anything close to what he experienced because he did that for you. Friends, you may be weak, sinful, needy, and lost, but you are not without hope. Thank God for that. Not just a hope, a living hope. Because he didn't just sacrifice and die and go through torture and pain, but he rose again. We are, our hope does not lie in a defeated, sacrificed God, but a man who was on the cross that rose again and a risen Savior. Our hope lies in a risen Christ. We just sang about it. Behold the risen Christ. And we put a hope in that. Now, despite our need for a sacrifice, despite our sin, he's alive. Oh my gosh, like what? He went through all that pain and all that torture and he's sweating blood and now he's alive? Yes! And so are you. And so am I. And despite all the odds, all the things that were justly deserved of us, we have a great high priest has made the sacrifice once and for all. Now we may live with him forever. And he's not just another high priest. So as we change our perspective, he's not just a priest in the Old Testament sense. He doesn't just give a sacrifice every single year. Because he's alive, he's a living, great high priest. If he was another high priest, he'd have to do another sacrifice again and again and again. We have to beg for mercy again and again and again, and we'd be in the same spot. But Jesus is the ultimate high priest, the final sacrifice. It's finished. God saw us in our need, had so much mercy for us that he gave us a high priest. He gave us Jesus. And that's what this is all about. As you read Hebrews, don't, don't miss the fact that Jesus is in here and Jesus in the Old Testament, it points all to the same thing, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Read this. Jesus was beset with weakness. Jesus became a man so we could live amongst him. He was with us and amongst us. Jesus dealt gently with the ignorant and wayward. He dealt with me. Jesus was called by God. But because he was God, he wasn't obligated to sacrifice for his own sins. He chose to sacrifice for ours. And he didn't sacrifice a spotless lamb. He sacrificed himself. He says this, being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Isn't that beautiful? Eternal salvation. Do you guys see the connection in the Old Testament now? Now as you read the Old Testament, now that, we, now that we know the importance of it, the sacrificing of a pure and spotless lamb every single year, over and over and over again, was just a preview of the gospel. The high priest making sacrifice to make right the sins of the people 
was just a foreshadowing of Christ the entire time. And you can read through that and say, there it is. I see the gospel in this. That's why it existed. That's why it's important. And that's why it's the best thing ever for you and me. That's why we can read this with fresh eyes and say, that is amazing. He was the fulfillment of the high priest. He wasn't just a high priest. He fulfilled it. And now, because he fulfilled all of that stuff, we get to be in the presence of God. We don't think about that when you wake up. Ah, today I'm in the presence of God, but it's true. Instead of once a year, one man, the highest qualified or the highest responsibility, walked into being God's presence once a year because of Christ as a high priest, making sacrifice, you all, all of us are in God's presence. And that causes us to worship him. That calls us to worship. You don't have to be a high priest. You don't have to slaughter an innocent animal. You don't have to keep earning it. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are in his presence always. Not once a year, not once a week, always. Verse 16, this is the wrap-up of this. We can now with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, find help in time of need. Despite that awful sin, despite the awful mess-ups, whatever in your heart causes you to churn, you know that you have a a great high priest in Jesus. If you believe in him, you get to now draw near to the throne of grace. And now you are alive in him forever. Amen to that. Now some some of this may be new to you. Some of you maybe have never heard this in your life. What is he talking about? We're learning about priests. We're learning about sin. Some of you maybe just walked in today and you're not sure why. If this is true, is it possible he's calling you right now? If you've never heard this in your life, if you've never seen this perspective of God, man, sin, would you now consider that this is not an accident that you're here, that God is actually drawing you closer as we speak and amongst these people He's placed you here to save you. Would you consider that? Would you believe that? In church, would we be the type of people that walk in confidence with one another and in our faith, drawing near to the throne of grace, not confident in our own own abilities, but draw near to the one who saves because we know he is our great high priest. And because of that, we are with him forever and we get to worship God him together for all the rest of our days. That's good news. Let's pray. God, I want to thank you again for your good news. Lord, it's it's so evident. I ask that we would read the scriptures with this lens. This wouldn't be something that we just pass by, that we would read an Old Testament and not find anything less than your gospel and your good power. We thank you for this. We thank you for your your son on the cross. We ask that we would not minimize this, Lord. We would own what we've done so that we may accept his sacrifice. We'd be the type of people that are so confident in what you've done. We don't need anything less. Lord, if there's some in this room that have not heard this yet, would you impart your Holy Spirit upon them to start changing the way they live and start, Lord, save them. Lord, as we enter this place of worship. May their hearts come alive. 
I ask that for the rest of the church as well. We became come alive knowing that you have paid the price and that we get to be alive. May they cause us joy. We give you the honor and glory for all this in Jesus' name. Amen.